there are some folks who are who are so sick. Um, and by sick, he meant like a cold sick, right? Like who are so sick that um, the medicine you have for them will never be strong enough. And he said, and in the case of racism, sometimes white folks just have to talk to white folks. That because you are a black woman, he'll never hear what you have to say, ever. And that's not a reflection of you. That's a reflection of how sick he is. He needs a different kind of medicine. When the darkness closes in Sometimes it feels like David and Goliath Seems so big and powerful When we come face to face with our giants Hey there, welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. A little bit of a caveat before we get started. Thank you so much to everyone that is involved uh, with the show on Patreon and on Facebook and on Twitter. I am very, very thankful for you all. To the Patreon supporters specifically, I am excited to share with you the upcoming blooper reel. I think it's going to be very fun and embarrassing for me, but hey, that's that's fine. We'll deal with it. If, if you haven't interacted in a way, here's how you can help with the show. Just rate us on iTunes. It's free. It takes a moment. Leave a comment on that as well. That would be great. I love the feedback. Uh, it helps make the show better, and that is my goal. Today... I spoke with Austin Channing Brown. She has a new book releasing entitled I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And so we talk about that. The title basically says it all. How do we deal with race and culture in the world that we're in? How do we talk about white privilege without getting angry? How do we work through this so that in 60 years, our children do not have to have the same conversations and arguments that we currently do? This matters for the church, it matters for our culture, it matters for our nation, it matters for our education, it matters for so many ways in life. And a bit of an aside, so Austin was willing to come on, and you will hear in the back uh, her her newborn. And so you might hear some noise and a few baby cries and whatnot. So, moving beyond that, I'm looking forward to you here in the episode. Have a great one. Austin, thank you so much for being able to join me today on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I have uh, I have enjoyed reading the book that you so graciously sent me, and I'm excited for today's discussion. But I will be honest, I am slightly worried about it because Uh-oh. we're talking about uh, a world made for whiteness, and I am white, and you are not. And so we'll just address that elephant in the room. Um, hopefully, hopefully we'll be all right. So I think we can handle it. Yeah. I think we can do this. Well, good. Well, Austin, can you... Just bring people up to speed. What's a little bit about you? And, and you, the whole book is really a story of you and the world that we live in. What's a little about you? What would you want people to kind of understand about you going into this as they read your book? Yeah, so I feel like I've read um, a lot of books um, about Blackness that take place in the Deep South um, or that take place in the hood or... Um, that are some, some sort of coming of age stories around other black folks. 
Um, and mine is a story of coming of age around a lot of white people. And so I really wanted to write a book that explored my identity development, having always been around white folks, as opposed to growing up around black folks and then being introduced to white dominant culture. What, what do you do now besides an author? What, what else do you do? That's it. I take care of my son, um, who is seven months old. Um, before he was born, I was a resident director, um, at, uh, at Calvin college. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for three years in addition to, um, doing some multicultural stuff on campus. Um, but now I just stay at home with my little baby and, um, yeah, and write and speak. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I've, I, I enjoy your writing and I've listened to a little bit of your speaking. So what was kind of the thought process behind you wanting to put all of this to paper? Because you, you've laid yourself awful bare in your book. Uh, uh, well, probably not everything as personal as it could be, but there's a lot of there's a lot of you in this. And I can say personally, um, when you do that in a public forum like a podcast or like a blog or like a book, that sure. there is a lot, of, um, a lot of risk that comes with that and a lot of vulnerability. So what made you want to, what was kind of the genesis of this book? Uh, the truth is I've been talking about race and justice for a long, long time, and I'm not a historian. Um, I'm not an academic. I'm not a theologian. And so the only way for me to approach this work is via my own story. And um, I think there are, I, I personally have appreciated um, particularly academic approaches to this conversation. Um, I like having new language. I like understanding America's history. Like that really, it really fills me up. But um, I felt like if there's a hole sort of in our conversations about racial justice, it's this present moment. And um, I feel like we've, we've got a lot of books out there on history on understanding how we got here. I wanted to try my best to help people understand um, what racial injustice looks like on an everyday basis, no matter where you live, no matter where you are. I wanted to try and unpack how people of color who are in the minority may be feeling on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think you've hit that tone. Well, I kept taking a few screenshots and sending it to a friend of mine that happens to be black as well, living just 25, 30 minutes east of me. And he's like, I, he's like, I want that book. He's like, I want to read all of it. I was like, well, patience. It's, it will be all right. Um, you, yeah. And he's like, no. Happy. That makes me really happy because I want the book to resonate with people of color um, so that they can say, yep, this is my experience too, and hand it to their white friends and say, read this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, and, and speaking for, for just my whiteness, yeah, white people read this book. Um, it, it is challenging, uh, especially, and we'll get into it in a little bit when we talk about white privilege and, and that type of stuff. It is, it is challenging, but I, I like the story that you tell about how and the reasoning you got your name and can yes. you go into that a little bit? Because I'd honestly never thought about, okay. Uh, okay. I interview many people and I can sure. say I do filter people that same way. Um, right. I didn't realize that I did until I read you say it. And then I went back and I looked at how I filtered people. I'm like, you know, I do actually, Yeah. the name matters. And I don't even know why the name should matter. Can you talk a bit about you know, that lineage? Like why, sure. you, why you got that name? Cause that story in the library and it's just a, a bunch there. Um, really, really spoke to me. Yeah. So, um, 
So my first name is Austin, which is my grandmother's maiden name. And so growing up, I always heard that um, I had the name Austin because I was the last Austin of our family line. <laughs> um, because um, no boys, no boys. Yeah. yeah. And so um, and I was always very proud of that. I thought that was perfectly reasonable. <laughs> and, but I, I, I always had known that um, that it was a boy's name. And I knew that because um, back in the 80s, when I was growing up, mid 80s, early 90s, they always had those little keychains that had the nameplate on them. And my nameplate was always blue mm-hmm. instead of pink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, sheesh. <laughs> um, yeah. So you so didn't get a license plate for your bicycle. I did not. I did, unless I wanted a blue one, and that was unacceptable to me at the time. I take it blue is not your favorite color. Not even. I was an unenlightened child. What can I say? (laughs) Blue was for boys, and I didn't appreciate it. And adults always reacted to my name um, as if I was supposed to be a boy. So teachers would walk into a classroom on the first day, not know who I was, call out Austin, and then would look towards where all the boys were sitting, Mm -hmm. waiting for one of the boys to raise their hands. And I would literally be on the opposite side of the room doing jumping jacks, trying to get their attention. Like, yeah, I'm right here. Yep, the girl is over here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a girl and my name is Austin. So, so all of that was very clear to me. But um, we spent a lot of time in our, in our library um, near, near my home. And there was a day when I handed the librarian my card. And she said, is this your card? And I was like, I think so. Like I didn't double check before I handed it to her, but I was pretty sure it wasn't my mom's or my brother's. And I, so I said, yeah, I think so. And she said, well, this card says Austin. I said, yep, that's mine. Mm-hmm. She said, are you sure? And I thought, pretty sure. I sure my name is Austin? <laughs> like I don't understand the question. <laughs> I'm fairly, fairly certain. <laughs> <What does that mean? laughs> And it got, it really pissed me off. Like it was like, I was so insulted mm-hmm. that she would like be doubting my intelligence or something. And so I marched over to my mother. I was like, why on earth did you give me this name? I don't understand. And she sat me down and started to tell me about my grandmother's let. And I was like, mama, I already know this. I'm asking you why you liked it. Like, why, why did you pick this? Um, and she said, Austin. We picked it because we knew one day you would have to fill out applications for college or a job. And we knew that having a white male name would be an asset. She said, we just need to get you to the interview. She said, now, once you get to interviews, we know you'll blow people away, but we just had to get you to the interview. And I was like, huh, (laughs) Mm. interesting. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that every time I had met another Austin, not only was it a boy, but it was a white boy. Yeah. And I thought that that was like a revelation for me. And but I was young, so I can't. I How can't old were say you? Stock was probably like eight, seven or eight, yeah. something like that. Um, but yeah, but it was my first like aha moment um, beyond just I'm different from the kids at my school. Right. I knew that like my hair was different from the white girl's hair. And right. Like it's not that I hadn't noticed race before, um, but I didn't know the significance of race until that moment. Yeah. 
No, I agree with that. I mean, my son is, he just turned nine last Tuesday, uh, beginning of April. And I can say it's about that time that you notice a huge difference between what they, what they begin to comprehend as opposed to what they see. Right. 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 Kids notice race pretty early, just differences in skin color and hair and all that kind of stuff. But then there's this moment when we realize what America thinks Mm -hmm. about race, thinks about what those things mean. And yeah, that was my moment. Yeah. So talk about that a bit again. So you went to both kinds of schools. So you you talk a a bit about when you're growing up, Mm -hmm. you had a school that was predominantly white and then you switched to a school that was not, correct? I went to a summer day camp. That was not. Yeah. Yeah. So my schools have always been predominantly white. Um, but there was a season in my life, um, probably three or four years, where the summer camp that I would go to was entirely black, and it was a culture shock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a big, big culture shock um, to be around all black kids who were used to being in an all black neighborhood and an all black school. Like that's all they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talked differently. I didn't know all the slang. I didn't know um, all the contemporary like artists that were popular at the time. Um, SWV's song Week was extraordinarily popular that first summer. Mm-hmm. And I did not know not one word. And I distinctly remember sitting on the bus, lip singing the entire thing. <laughs> Faking it. <laughs> praying that nobody noticed no sound was actually coming out of my mouth. <laughs> you're just soft spoken. You just you're hitting the falsetto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a big big shock to my system. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Cuz that still happens today. I mean, that happens sure. every day, especially as uh more and more demographics seem to overlap and people are able to move away from where they grew up. So how does how do we deal with that or how do we teach our kids to deal with that today? Cuz it's not uh, it's not going anywhere. Tr- truthfully, I have no idea. I wish I could tell you. <laughs> Um, I, I will say, I will say this though. It was really good for me. It was a hard, hard transition. Um, I was called names. I was called like an Oreo, which means that I was black on the outside, Mm -hmm. but white on the inside. I was asked how, you know, why do I talk white? Um, so there were a lot of hard days and it was just embarrassing to not know what all the other kids knew, um, to not be able to participate in their conversations about Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown. Um, you know, there was just a lot of things that I didn't get. Um, and so, but it made me appreciate, um, that, that blackness had a different culture, um, that they had a different way of talking, that they had a different conversation. Um, they danced more, they joked more. They they were, they, in, in some sense, they were more free. Mm-hmm. than anything I had experienced in like in a white school. Now, part of that is because it's school versus day camp, right? Right. <laughs> but but there was still, nonetheless, a certain inner freedom that I experienced with these kids that I had never experienced in my white school. And so I'm really grateful um, to have, to be able to appreciate what folks in my school would have called disrespectful or would have called unruly or would have called, right? Like they would have had a name for it. You mean in the way not- that they acted? Sure. The way that you all act, yeah. Sure, sure. And it wasn't. It was just fun and free yeah. and a different way of being. And I was really glad to to experience that. Yeah, I've had that a similar conversation with some of the other guests on the show, um, either from you know a Native American viewpoint or whatnot. But 
what I'm coming to find is that unless you can experience a down pressing of culture on you, right. that when you move past it, you genuinely experience joy. And right. that most people, because at least in America, most white people don't ever experience that kind of oppression. The joy that I feel is, is I don't know, it's this going to sound bad or it's going to sound <laughs> tripe. The joy that I feel doesn't compare because I'm coming from a place that is not as foundationally pressed on. Right. Then, right. Then, I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. I, I don't think. No, I you totally are. I think, I think an, an example of this is, is um, the Black Panther movie. Mm-hmm. Love it. And how extraordinarily excited black folks were dressing up in African garb and giving mm-hmm. each other the Wakanda forever sign. And you know, like, a, we got yeah. taken, p- taken pictures with the poster in the movie theater. You know, those are things we've never done before. And so to like to experience that level of freedom, that level of joy comes from not having the opportunity to celebrate that way at the movie theater all the time, right? Yeah. White folks probably enjoy superhero movies. I'm pretty sure they do. I think they like Superman and Batman and all the things. Mm-hmm. But they didn't feel it as deeply when it comes out, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they go, they enjoy it, they wear the t-shirt, but they're not necessarily taking pictures in front of the poster. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> they're not giving each other a sign as they walk in the door. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I, well, I, I did see the movie. I gave nobody a sign, but that's because I'm not. I wouldn't do that anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it was a great movie. I took my son to see it, um, and he didn't get any of the colonization cultural overtones of it because he's eight. But he he still. I think Black Panther might be his favorite movie. He just likes him. So I I think that's what made it such a fantastic movie. That for adults who are thinking through race. There was so much to have a conversation about. Mm-hmm. But if you're a kid or if you just wanted to enjoy an action movie, perfect. <laughs> like still, still a fantastic movie. I think it did both really, really well. How So you talk in your book a bit about the ideology of whiteness as supreme. Can you speak to that a bit? So a lot of people, when, when, when the phrase white supremacy shows up... <laughs> in the blog or on the news or whatever, people have a tendency to jump straight to like the KKK or people who would say white power or, you know, like sort of an extreme buy-in to the ideology around white supremacy. And in the whole Mm -hmm. book, I try to make clear that, um, that white supremacy shows up in a lot of small ways. And at its core, it's this belief that what white folks are doing is the best way, is the right way, is the only way, is the most holy way. (laughs) And don't genuinely stop to rethink what they're doing um, from the perspective of anyone else. Not all um, organizations have the same white culture. So I've been a part of organizations that are super minimalist and communal and you own as little as possible you spend every waking moment together, right? You work together, you live together, you go to church together. Um, and that is what is valued. And then there are other white cultures that are like highly corporate and you climb the ladder and you do what you have to do. Um, you dress a certain way, you look a certain way. Um, so, so it doesn't always look the same. The point though, is that whatever the culture that's created 
that there's no room for diversity within it. So, um, so let's take the communal white culture. Should I decide that I have other friends that I would really like to spend time with <laughs> and I skip the Friday mm-hmm. night dinners instead of someone asking, huh, maybe we should investigate whether or not we all should form outside relationships and develop community beyond ourselves, right? Instead of, instead of doing that, um, white folks would be like, does she not like us? Is she, is she, do you know if she's questioning right. her faith? Do you think she's as, do you think she's as committed as the rest of us are? <laughs> you know, and then when they pray, they say, yeah. God, would you just move her heart to be more like us, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah, and usually when you're in the room, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's what I mean. Um, I'll try and give another uh, like hardcore example of this. So I have a lot of friends who are vocalists who sing at conferences and sing at churches, and um, the nature of my work just lends me to know a lot of vocalists. And it is not unusual for um, women of color, in particular to be asked to um, be able to perform both in an, an ethnic specific way, as well as the Christian contemporary country, pop rock, whatever. What, what do you mean perform in <laughs> an ethnic way? Yes. So, um, so if you're a black woman, you need to be able to sing all the songs that would normally be sung that the culture is used to. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to be able to sing gospel music on MLK Day, and you have to be able to, you know, put out a little rap, hip hop, spoken word thing for when they talk about just this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, like you got to be, you got to be good at both. But there's one that still is dominating. Um, there's one that's still dominant, right? There's still one like great way of doing this. And then the others we do, you know, occasionally. Um, and the and because the culture doesn't actually change, because we're not actually going to infuse gospel or rap or Spanish language songs or right, because we're not actually going to infuse that into our way of being. The vocalists who are white never have to learn that. Mm-hmm. They never have to try out hip hop. They never have to learn right. how gospel music actually works. They never. <laughs> to study um, Spanish in order to make sure they're getting the lyrics right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is one way in which churches, consciously or not, are making whiteness supreme. There is a cultural way of being which elevates white Christian contemporary music above that of all the other different kinds of music that exist in the world and that are highly spiritual for people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say worship is hard. So I lead the worship. Well, I, I, I and other people lead the worship at, at my, at, at one of the services at my church, but on the way there and my son who is, who's nine now, he, he comes and he plays the djembe with us. He has wow. a full drum kit just on the other side of the room, but he's not good on that yet, but he, he comes and he practices with us. So he's there at seven yeah. fifteen, seven thirty in the morning before most people even come to church. Okay. But on the way there, he, requests and so this is usually what we listen, so we'll listen to propaganda or animenio nice. or 
Yeah, this week it was Heath McNeese. Like, it doesn't matter if they're white or black, just good rhythmic music, which is almost yeah. always hip hop or spoken word. It's never yep. really Chris Tomlin or Passion. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with those songs. It's just not at all. they're not there. And so I find it fun to watch him wanting to listen to music with his kid, with his friends, and they want to listen yeah. to country. And he's like, I don't, why do you like this? Like, this is not, <laughs> this isn't fun. This is not even music. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've indoctrinated him or if I'm making him something. I don't know what I'm doing to him, but I'm, I'm probably breaking him. But it'll be fine. He'll get older and it'll be fine. <laughs> we all are. It's okay. We're all just going to get them therapy. Hallelujah, I am broken. I'm broken wide open. I have a friend that teaches school and I, I let her read your book because I thought she would enjoy it. Um, she is, she's black as well. And, and I wanted her perspective from it. And I wanted to ask you a bit to talk a little bit about the seating chart story that you go about in your book at that Catholic school, because, and the reason being is I think most people that are white will not admit fault. Uh, right. I, I'm not allowed to be wrong. I can say I'm wrong to my wife, but I'm never right. telling, I'm not telling you. Um, okay. And so that's what I liked the most about that. Um, can you go into a bit about that? And then I wanted to ask a few questions that she asked me. I said, you know, if you could ask Austin something, what would you ask? And so she sent oh, me a few. Um, okay. Yeah. From a, from a, from a feminine perspective, which I can't bring. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. I think this is another really good example of how white supremacy operates, even in people who are really nice and who aren't actually like trying to be mean. Um, so I had a religion teacher who was amazing in high school. She um, was extraordinarily honest. She told us all about her life, no matter how embarrassing it was. Um, she used curse words on a regular basis, which was <laughs> so much fun because she's the religion teacher. Um, and so she was just like a breath of fresh air. I don't remember you saying any of that in there, but I like it better now. <laughs> um, so one day we walk into the classroom. This must have been like at the turn of the semester when she had a, a new class. Um, we walk in and she says, guys, today you get to choose your own seats. And once you get seated, I'm going to tell you why. And we were like, okay, this is unusual. I don't think I've ever had a teacher who just like switched mid semester. Mm -hmm. um, so we all sat down and she was so serious, which was very unusual for her. And she said, guys, I realized as I was making a seating chart, um, or, or I had made a seating chart for a new class and I realized that what I, that I was doing something racist. And I was like, Oh my Lord, <laughs> I was like, where is this story going? <laughs> and she said that she had made a seating chart and that what the first time her, that class had walked into the door, there were two black girls who ended up sitting next to each other. And her first thought was, oh, my goodness, these two girls are going to be so disrespectful for the rest of the year. And then literally she gasped in front of us. She went oh, as if she had like was having the realization all over again. Mm -hmm. um, 
And she said, I realized in that moment, as I thought that to myself, that I have been making seating charts based on trying to separate students of color. Because I assume that if two students of color sit next to each other, they are going to be disruptive. And she said, so I will no longer create seating charts. All of you will sit where you want to sit. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I think it's a really good example of how like she's a woman in authority. She has power in her classroom. And even though she was super nice, she was still unwittingly using that power to enforce a racist bias. If you're a teacher and you're listening to this and you hear that story, be you a white teacher, a black teacher, a, a, a Spanish teacher, an Asian teacher, it doesn't matter. How do you honor the people that are white or not make them uncomfortable in a way that they no longer can learn? But how do you also then teach the staff to embrace culture so that you can then embrace culture with the students? So I speak and teach a lot, but not in the same way that teacher teachers do, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so I want to acknowledge um, my own uh, limitations in being able to answer this question. But I think in the book, there's another teacher whose name is Mr. Slavinsky. um, And he was a white teacher and he did a fantastic job of honoring different cultures, his, you know, all the cultures of his students by infusing that into his curriculum. And perhaps easier for some than others, um, because he was an English teacher, Um, but he was really, really thoughtful about varying the authors that we were reading and the characters in our stories and um, the poetry and the time frame. And he just was very, very intentional. And he expected us to learn from everybody that no matter who he put in front of us, no matter which author, no matter what background, whether they were Christian or not, um, you know, it didn't matter. Everybody had something to teach us. Um, and so I think, I think that's one way, but I think teachers really have to attempt to be self-reflective of their own racial biases. Right. So, so she, she probably got that bias easily, right. That, we're in a dominant, predominantly white school. I'm sure at some point there were two black girls who sat next to each other Mm -hmm. (laughs) and talked through her class. Mm -hmm. But why? Because it's, I I, I think it's hard for white folks to appreciate how difficult it can be to be the only one, Mm -hmm. the only one who looks like you, the only one who shares your cultural background, the only one who is hoping for something different from the teacher. Um, That's really hard to go through your whole day and potentially not see anybody who looks like you. And then you get your one class where you get to sit next to your friend and, you know, you might get a little disruptive. (laughs) But the the difference is there is no way she had, she had easily been teaching for a decade. I am sure that over the course of her 10 plus years, that there was a moment when two white students were disruptive. Yeah, but it just went unnoticed. It was fine. But it went unnoticed, right? It wasn't attributed to their race. Mm-hmm. And and that, I think that was what she suddenly became aware of, that the two black girls wasn't about them not seeing each other. It wasn't about them just being 16. It wasn't about, right? Like it wasn't attributed to anything. 
other than race and her desire to stop students of color from her assumption that they would be disrespectful if they sat next to one another. So when I talk to people on Facebook or Twitter and I say anything about race or the president, but mostly about race, it quickly gets to be a, why do we have to discuss white privilege? I mean, that happened just this morning. Uh, A friend of mine shared something from John Pavlovitz talking about white privilege. And he's like, that white privilege isn't isn't a thing, you know, we shouldn't teach this way, we shouldn't try to change the culture, we should just try to be better. But I am realizing often that I was born into a system geared for me to win, which isn't fair to me. Um, It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be allowed to win either, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to not win if you're a person of color. And so how do we have a conversation about white privilege And specifically, I'm interested in what you said about white fragility, where somehow it doesn't matter what I say or you say, you still have to give me permission to feel guilty. And and I don't hear people talk about that. Usually it just quickly escalates into calling someone a fascist. So how do we how do we get to to a level where we can talk about just the way the rules are set? I think white people have a lot of work to do. To be honest, I think, you know, I once ended up in a situation where I had been teaching a class and the content of my class made a white guy really, really angry. Um, And he was sort of all up in my face and pointing his fingers at me and just really, really angry. And I went home and told my husband what happened. Oh, and 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 I, I never calmed him down. So uh, another white guy, a coworker, had to intervene in order to... Yeah, calm him down. Mm-hmm. So I went and I went home and told my husband, and he said to me, "You know what, Austin? There are there are some folks who are who are so sick, um, and by sick he meant like a cold sick, right? Like who are mm-hmm. so sick that the medicine you have for them will never be strong enough." And and he said, and in the case of racism, sometimes white folks just have to talk to white folks that because you are a black woman, he'll never hear what you have to say ever. And that's not a reflection of you. That's a reflection of how sick he is. He needs a different kind of medicine. The medicine that he needs is another white man to say, this is what's real. And this is what is happening in the world. Yeah. I think white folks have been silent too long to be truthful. So how do I do that then? How do I, as a white man or someone listening as a white woman, how do I be that medicine without being prideful or arrogant or whatever the word is? How do I do that and be genuine about it? I think you have to, one, remember what it was like when you weren't informed, (laughs) right? To remember that there was a moment when you didn't get it either. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a moment before you read that really good book or before you made that friend or before you traveled to that country or, right? Like Mm -hmm. there was, before you went to that great conference, Um, and I, and I think that's how you begin with humility and say that everybody has to start somewhere and to remember that you yourself started somewhere. Yeah. And I think the second thing is to remember why you're doing it, that you don't do it because you're right. You don't do it because, um, you're trying to like, quote unquote, indoctrinate someone. You're doing it because you really believe in justice and you really believe in community. You really believe that, 
if we all join hands together, that we could make the world better. And so I, I think it, it takes, and, and, and truthfully, I think it takes a lot of courage because I do know white folks who become really passionate about justice, who get talked about by their family members, mm-hmm. you know, or um, who, have to ha- who have to take all the snide remarks I, I think that the, that the the risk is real. I I, I had a, a a handful of <laughs> a handful of college students um, who were learning about justice and particularly the criminal justice system and how racialized it is. And a number of them, right after the election, were very concerned about going home for Thanksgiving mm-hmm. because they didn't know what to say and how to be gracious and how to be loving and how not to be ostracized and especially if you're a student, how do you stand up to your uncle? You know, like, what does it look like to be respectful? <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to end with, with hope. So you end your book and I want to, I don't want to quote you unless it's okay. Is that okay? Yeah, please do. You said, I ask myself, where is your hope, Austin? And you said, the answer is it is but a shadow. What does that mean? Yeah. So I am a Christian um, I do believe in ultimate hope, hope with a capital H, hope that God is making all things right, hope that heaven will touch earth and things will be perfect, right? Um, and I believe that with my whole heart. But this book was all about trying to acknowledge the place I live now, right? And so though I believe in ultimate hope, the exploration of hope in my chapter is about my daily experience. And my my hope is tentative these days. <laughs> so I um, accept an invitation to go preach at the chapel service where all the students are required to be there. Mm-hmm. And my hope, my hope is tentative, right? <laughs> I go and I preach the best sermon that I possibly can and hope that students are inspired. But I'm also highly aware that there's probably going to be three or four students who fall asleep, another three or four who are angry by my message, and another two who are going to come up to me after the service and, and challenge me. Yeah. And same thing for like for churches, for the blog, for you know, for for all the folks who appreciate the book, you know, hop on Amazon and read all the people who did not. Um, (laughs) and that's but you know but that's real right like so am i am i hopeful about what could be on a daily basis am i hopeful about the church am i hopeful yeah hopeful enough to do the work Mm -hmm. hopeful enough to show up to preach the sermon to write the next blog to be on twitter to have these conversations with you do you think it'll be better in 50 years than it is now I don't know. I think some things will be better. I think um, our history, though, is that we just find new ways to perpetuate old systems. Mm. And so I think the question is, will we find a new system? Find a new system. Will we decide that there's a different way of being and of doing Um and I think that remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, for my kids' sake, I would hate to know when I'm 90 that my son and daughters are having to have the same conversation um, or that your kids' kids are having to have the same. I don't know if you saw that Procter & Gamble commercial 
No. There's a Procter & Gamble commercial, and it's, oh, man, I'm going to say this poorly. Um, I had a friend that sent it to me, and they've gotten a lot of pushback. It basically is it that they, we are going to market products to whoever we need to market products to. And so it starts with a black uh, mom uh, combing out her daughter's hair. Uh, and it talks about a woman trying to teach her daughter to drive and say, when you get pulled over, you don't say anything. She's like, I'm not going to get a ticket. She's like, this ain't about you getting a ticket. This is about you coming home. And um, the mom combing the daughter's hair basically says, no, that was not a compliment. You were not beautiful for a black girl. Like you were just straight beautiful. And so that's what I mean. If you haven't seen the the ad, I'd go to YouTube and I think it's called, uh, I think it's Black is Beautiful Procter & Gamble or something like that. Very similar to that Dove commercial where they uh, had the person describe the person in the waiting room with them and it was talking about just the way that you see yourself is ugly and the way they see you is so beautiful and, and, and glowing. Um, I would really hate for 50 to 60 years from now, my kids are having to have the same exact wheels are in the mud, conversation at church, conversation at work, conversation with their kids. I am in agreement that it would be really, really sad. And the reason that I can't say, yes, we're so clearly moving that direction is that in 2015, a white supremacist shot up a black church. And was it just last year, a white supremacist ran his car mm -hmm. into a group of people yep. and killed a young woman. Yeah. And, and for just for context, I'm 20 miles from that. That's, that's quite you? literally where I live. Um, are you? Yeah. Did yeah. not realize that. Yeah. That day we actually had debated whether or not to go to a park in Charlottesville Get with my family. Out. And we decided instead just to, well, let's just stay home and, and turn on the news. Cause I'm not, I I'm not see. interested in driving across the mountain right. <laughs> to right, go right, over right. there. Um, but these are, these are young folks. These, these people aren't, you know, 70 years old mm -hmm. and still screaming about segregation, right? These yeah. are, these are young folks who have learned from someplace about the power of white supremacy. And so, and, and there are other people excusing, not necessarily, um, Charleston, but certainly, um, you know, the parades and the, the you know, oh, yeah, 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 well, I hope it's it a does. both and. and I'll say I will say in the book that um, that at no point did all white people have to get it together in order for there to be progress. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't have to have 100 percent participation. <laughs> yeah. To make just, progress. just more than zero. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. And that's why these conversations are so important because we can make change together. Um, we just all have to be committed to doing that and to taking the risk and having the courage to do so. Right. Well, Austin, how would you point people to get involved with you, directed towards you and towards some of the work that you're doing? Um, for those that are listening, uh, as this releases, you'll be able to most likely buy the book. And so I'll put a link in that, but it is well worth your time. And I can tell you from experience, I would sit down at nine o'clock at night intending in preparation for this interview to just read one chapter and look up and it would be midnight. And so that is, that is a, that's a great problem. Um, but it's either way, it was still a problem for me. I was sleep deprived, but, but it is well worth the read and I appreciate you writing it, but how would you direct people to get involved with you sure. and, and interact with you a bit if they want to. Sure, sure, sure. So um, I would love to have this conversation that you and I are having um, in person with folks. 
um, I still get a lot of invitations to like preach or to speak somewhere. And I am discovering that having these kinds of conversations, answering questions, um, is, is, is perhaps more productive, I think is Mm -hmm. more productive, is more effective. Um, so I would love to do more of that. Um, I do also, um, I'm in the process of creating a discussion guide to help groups think through Mm -hmm. this book. Um, and it will also include a video series. So I would just say, look out for that. I'm hoping to release them in like June or so. Okay. So just follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and, and all the things that are coming down the pipeline, there'll be a couple book release parties. So yeah, stay tuned. But, Great. um, yeah, I would say Twitter is probably where I spend most of my time. <laughs> great. Yeah, <laughs> no, Facebook I agree. Instagram would be I, great. I've been yeah. enjoying, I, I enjoy Twitter. I find, I find I have the most honest conversations in small pieces on Same. Twitter, um, with random Same. people. So, so yep. it's fine. Yep. I um, love it. I can't, uh, well, thank you again for your time and, for your patience with me and uh and uh, i'll let you get back to to your son oh you have definitely been the patient one and he and i both thank you <laughs> no, no problem <laughs> bye thank you Sometimes i'm scared myself if i'm being honest and i think this is what we need i want to see signs in miracles i want to see the the music that you heard today is provided with permission from artist Jordan St. Cyr. You can check out his music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, anywhere else that you listen to music, as well as go to his website, jordansaintcyr.com. St. Cyr is spelled S-T-C-Y-R.com. As with all of the music featured on any of the episodes, you'll also find Jordan's music on our own Spotify playlist called Can I Say This at Church? I need... To humble myself and-